Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Free Marketeers, our latest live episode, doing a few of these now. So hopefully we're getting uh, more and more used to it. Uh, today I'm joined by a very special guest, someone I've wanted to talk to on the show for quite a while, someone I've looked up to for, for quite a few years in terms of his intellectual output and capacity. Uh, today we have Dr. Franz Cornier. Franz, thanks so much for being here. Chris, good morning. It's nice to be here. You guys are such a great organization. It's, um, it's always nice to make time for, for the right sort of people. Yeah, well, thank you what very can much. I tell um, you, Chris? Yeah, Franz. So just some background for, for the viewers who don't know you. Um, Franz directs the Center for Risk Analysis. It's a Johannesburg-based strategic intelligence think tank that has advised a great number of corporations and government agencies around the world on South Africa's long-term economic, social, political, and policy sort of uh, trajectories. Uh, Franz holds a PhD in scenario planning, and he has published three books on South Africa's future and authored scores of policy assessments, briefings, reports, and forecasts on the country. His third book, The Rise or Fall of South Africa, was released in April of 2020. For those of you who want to look into the CRA's work, I have linked to their respective channels uh, in the description below. So Franz, just to start off with, um, <laughs> maybe there was some hope for 2021 after what 2020 threw at us. Um, I thought we'd lead in with your broad thoughts of South Africa at present, where we are, I guess, economically, mm -hmm. politically, and socially, um, and how you think that might turn out in the next few months and the year, but we can get into that a little bit later. So for now, just your your basic overview of things at the moment. Mm -hmm. Now, in the longer term, we must start with that, actually, the end point. In, in the much longer term, um, I think the country is positioned for a realignment politically and later reformation. But it's not a, a near-term or a, even a medium-term prospect, but we'll get there. So as I continue, don't, don't become too worried. I mean, you should be have a certain level of concern, but this, this thing has a twist in the tail, I think, South Africa. And uh, so bear that in mind as I proceed. Well, I think morning, a few I things. You would, uh, I, I came into this expecting you to paint a very rosy picture for me. So if you're going to depress me on a Monday morning, then I might just oh, mute you or something. Okay, what's happened? What's happened here? I think a, a useful way to think of it is like this. Um, South Africa and, and its government has run out of, of a number of things. One is the electricity that it needs in order to grow its economy, uh, raise revenues, rein in the deficit, create jobs, etc. There's data we're working on now uh, out, out of the South African energy world, and what that shows is that the energy availability factor, now that's a number calculated by deducting from what goes out into the grid, uh, energy capacity that is out of action for maintenance or breakdowns or some other reason, has fallen from about 90% 20 years ago. It fell into the 80 percentiles about uh, 10 years ago. And it's now fallen to below 60%. And the trend line on, on Eskom is, is pretty clear, and it cuts through the political rhetoric and the promises and the assurances that there are war rooms and turnaround plans and, and new boards, etc. And there are people at Eskom doing their very best. But the trend line is, is straight down. And I think the data is now sufficiently, uh, has a sufficient momentum behind it 
to say that from an ESCOM perspective, South Africa cannot uh, aspire to an economic growth rate uh, of much over 1%. So that's number one. It's run out of electricity. Number two is the government that runs the country has run out of the money that it needs to do so effectively. The budget deficit, which is the difference between what the government spends and what it earns, is now at a level that South Africa last saw in the late 1980s as apartheid was collapsing under the weight of its contradictions and prior to that, the Second and the First World Wars. And there's again the spin and it comes from government, sometimes it comes from commercial institutions and some economists that there's a plan and there are expenditure ceilings and we're going to rein these in. If you follow these things year after year, you'll know that that's again just fluff. It, it buys time, it's political spin, it's, it's not real. And, and the real data shows that those ceilings are broken uh, time and time again. The room to rein in expenditure is, is, is very limited given the importance of patronage and cadre deployment to the stability of the ANC. You've got very influential unions. And in any event, more than all of that, austerity is not a solution to a low growth problem that is born of bad policy. You can't save yourself out of uh, the kind of deficit that, that, that we face at the moment with this low growth context behind it. It's just not a solution. So number one, electricity is we've run out of, or are, and number two, money we've run out of. Third thing that um, the government is running out of is political support. And this becomes quite apparent if you read the right indicators. There are now more people who, who could vote but choose not to than the number of people who vote for the ANC. Amongst younger people, ANC support uh, levels have deteriorated uh, quite rapidly. And in our most recent polling, which is just a few weeks old, now polls are not predictions of the election result. It's when you ask people, regardless of whether they do vote or will vote or want to vote, where are they politically at the moment? We, we in January, polling the ANC at 49%, which is, which is very low. And a confidence in the future of the country and by extension its government, that you can track in polls as well. That's been falling very steeply since the demise of Tybo and Berkey. And as that's fallen, you've had a corroboratory indicator in protest levels taking off quite quickly too. So political support for the ANC is deteriorating very quickly. We've got this big pool of non-voters run out of money. We've run out of electricity. Fourth thing South Africa has run out of uh, its government uh, but the country by extension, is credibility. Uh, even just a few years ago, and in the immediate aftermath of Mr. Ramaphosa's coming to power, the, the, the credibility with which government pledges, promises, assurances uh, were received was pretty good. Uh, business was very keen on the Ramaphosa era, uh, uh, that, that reform would follow. Uh, diplomats in the Western world were equally keen to, to the point of being naive and to the point of where we had some pretty tough engagements with some of our clients who, who did not uh, uh, take easily to the message that it was unlikely that Mr. Ramaphosa was a great reformer and that the ANC was capable of reform. Now, I think, Chris, this is where we're at now. So four points. I, I reiterate them, but they're important. Run out of money, run out of electricity, run out of political support, 
and you're running out of credibility. We see that in our in our jobs uh, every day, uh, the credibility deficit. And uh, I think that is that is my opening remark for you. Uh, uh, from here, of course, the question becomes: Well, if you run out of all those things, well, what happens next? But I'm sure you'll you'll take me there, Chris. Uh, back to you. I wanted to ask you a bit about the reformist aspect or the reformist hope that people seem to have. So we had that, as you said, coming into the Ramaphosa um, administration, and even now, there's sometimes uh, it might, might be flailing hope for reform within the governing party and then within government. So. You know, it strikes me as, and I'm playing devil's advocate, but that might be a, a wrong avenue to to walk down in terms of thinking reformers just going to come internally from in the, within the ruling party. What what does your research tell you about the potential for reform going forward? And and this whole thing of waiting for the right person, quote unquote, to be sort of in charge, as it were. I think a lot of our focus is on can a new man or woman come in to to sort of save the ANC or save the the country. But I, I think we really need to change our thinking around that whole sort of that whole path. I think there were a few analytical mistakes that were made in business and amongst diplomats and others who bought very strongly into the long game thesis and the Ramaphoria turnaround. And and there were a few mistakes. Number one was they personalized the analysis of the ANC. They felt that Zuma, the man, was a particular problem. And if that personality could be removed, then the problem could be alleviated. And the, 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 the fact was that the problem had become institutionalized with, within the ANC. Uh, a good example of that, a way you can actually produce some numbers on it, is on the question of corruption. The narrative sold to the country, and, and I'm very interested to see what comes out of the Zondo Commission on the media and its role in promoting some narratives. The narrative sold to the country was, you know, if Mr. Zuma goes away, the Guptas are detained, then uh, South Africa gets a lot better and growth and so on are, are restored and corruption is dealt with. And it, it worked in the media because South Africans had, had gone through this decade under Zuma of declining living standards, job growth had ground to a halt. People were angry and frustrated, and so the political establishment was able to create a villain, and Mr. Zuma was the archi, sort of typical villain, and focus public anger and attention on him. And when he was deposed, and, and then uh, the hawks were raiding people and going to Saxon World, public sentiment improved. But it wasn't sustainable, and, and the reason is that it's an analysis we did of the executive committee of the ANC, which is practically the present one, there might have been a few changes since we did it, found that a major that's the committee that really manages the ANC's affairs, it's got 80 ordinary members. And we delved into each one. And we were able to identify that in 41 of the 80, there were serious allegations of corruption against the individual in question. And nine, we're fairly confident, were clean. And the balance, the 31, we couldn't make a call on one way or the other. Now, now from that, we draw the conclusion that a majority of the management of the ruling party are people who could potentially be sent to prison 
if South Africa actually introduced the governance reforms that, that would see uh, mass prosecutions. But this is the very same committee that has to uh, right the ship, as it were, and, and buy into that. And our clients and business diplomats and other observers became disappointed. Why is there no firm move towards corruption? Why doesn't it happen? Why are there no prosecutions? Why do we kick these things into touch? Our explanation was, well, there's a structural problem here. That the ANC does appreciate the damage it causes to the brand. So it's willing to create the impression of acting firmly on, on corruption. But it cannot actually afford to take very firm action. Now, of course, that's only sustainable to a point. And, 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 and with the election pending this year and ANC support very weak, I think the ANC is in the process of creating a new villain. And this villain is Ace Mahashula. And, and so as in the case of Mr. Zuma, he deserves all the, the bad press that he gets. But the country makes the same mistake again. It thinks, ah, if you remove the individual, then you open the way to reform. But, but the sort of hard grind, deep dive analysis of the management committee of the party itself suggests that, that it cannot reform itself other than to go through these, these, these moments in the media. And you find a similar uh, thing, Chris, when you look at the ideological balance inside the ANC and the cabinet. The client's exasperated and say to us, why is there not reform? Uh, uh, it's obvious, uh, ANC is losing support, the deficit, jobs, protest action, all, all these things. Why is there not reform? And our answer to the client is to say, well, if you look at the individuals who sit in the prominent cabinet positions or on the NEC. These are people who do not support reform. And there's a reform lacks in the country for a lack of reformers. And if I was pressed, I won't name them, but if I was pressed to say how many in that top cabinet leadership or in the NEC are people who who would be enthusiastic to drive strong structural reforms. I think um, the number is less than five. I'd be more comfortable with a number nearer to three, of whom two I don't think are going to be here by the time of the 2024 election. And, and you know, it's, 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 you, you do the analysis that way, actually go into the individuals, into their track records, read their speeches, understand their positions, and then make the call on the prospects for reform. I think both from a governance and an ideological perspective, it remains very unlikely, regardless of the pressure that builds on this administration, that it will ever embrace the necessary structural reforms to position South Africa as a um, high-growth economy. And then, and then I end for you, then you've got to weigh that against what I told you about the politics and the running out of credibility and the running out of support. And in fact, if you, you can see where I'm going with this, that the uh, uh, position of the country, is just from a sort of cold, clinical perspective, it it's, it's just seems unsustainable that the current political administration can continue to hold office election in and election out deep into the end of this decade. And in fact, Many of the measures, economic, socioeconomic, et cetera, 
are starting to suggest that the climate of opinion in South Africa is ripe for a, a realignment on a scale of what the country last saw in the 1980s and the 1990s. France, do you think the the current administration sort of bungling of at least some of the lockdown regula regulations the last year will accelerate, you know, its own demise, as it were, trying to hold on to sand and sand slipping out of its fingers kind of thing. And then on that note, I just wanted you, you also to maybe um, forecast how you think the, the vaccine rollout will go. Uh, apparently today we're getting our first million doses, but... Um, I guess we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's done. I, I think the 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 pandemic uh, management has done a lot of damage. I mean, South Africa's uh, growth rate was was already. The, the thing is, Chris, South Africa was already going into the pandemic in a terribly weak position. We we wrote a, this book last year that you mentioned, the rise or fall of South Africa, and uh, the book was written the previous year, as you know. You, it, 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 it took a lot of time. And uh, we didn't say there'd be a pandemic, uh, but we did say that what we can see is that South Africa is so fragile from a political, social, and economic perspective that if you apply a very great global shock to it now, it will be one of the most exposed emerging markets and it will trigger this, this political realignment, really accelerate. The book made the reach this a conclusion that there is this political realignment that's that's coming for the country. So COVID accelerated that for us and, and the management of the pandemic was very poor in its early stages. You can't do lockdowns if you can't do massive stimulus. Uh, two million people lost their jobs. Uh, uh, in, in an economy with a labor market absorption rate. Now, this is a much better measure for the labor market in South Africa than the unemployment rate, because absorption measures what proportion of people of working age have a job. And in, in very dynamic emerging markets, you'll get an absorption rate of around uh, 70%. In South Africa, going into COVID, the absorption rate was just somewhere under 40. Now, now globally, that's completely off the charts. And that now dipped further down into the into the 30s. So great damage was caused, and and to 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 government credibility, it, it just fed that that already existing major key driving force of of slippage in in ANC support on on the back of socioeconomic circumstances. There are some twists in the tail, though, Chris. I looked at 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 some ANC polls this morning uh, for another uh, purpose. Uh, but I'll share with you that that if, if you disaggregate present ANC support levels by levels of labor market participation or employment, the, the, the ANC is weakest now amongst the employed and particularly weak amongst people who are employed in the formal sector. But its standing is pretty good amongst the unemployed and best amongst unemployed people who are not looking for work. So while I think the long-term trend of low levels of labor market absorption uh, accelerated by the pandemic response will harm the ANC in the short run, uh, into the medium term even, uh, uh, that you may see some reversals there, particularly if the party is good at creating the hope 
in people's minds that uh, you know this this new uh, basic income grant will be supplied and 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 more welfare that, that will work for a time politically might even help the ANC in 2024 but where it does not materialize the evidence on South Africa is that that the political price the party pays for that is is very great on the um on the vaccine rollout we were a very late starter on that uh, the treasury applications for the expenditure that's really the smoking gun on how late we were uh, apparently much of that was only initiated this year the israelis i'm told paid for their vaccines in april of last year the the there, there has been tremendous political pressure uh, created to procure the vaccine and i think that has had an effect without the pressure always works in in lobbying in south africa talking nicely doesn't uh, you must create political pressure you must turn public opinion because that that will drive uh, public policy and i think the there is now procurement on the go but there's a problem in that the government feels that if the private sector played a prominent role in the procurement and distribution of the vaccine that would undermine the case for and public confidence in the proposed national health insurance scheme which is essentially a nationalizing of private health care and so whereas had south africa's private sector been able to take the lead in procurement and distribution uh, we would have moved far faster on this vaccine the private sector is now really waiting step by as much as it's trying to lead from within i don't know if that's always the best strategy the we, we're now being held up by the slowness in the government rollout and i was struck by a comment from the mining industry last week obviously placed in the media for purpose of creating pressure that if that industry were just left to its own devices it thinks it could inoculate or vaccinate all mine workers in the country in a period of just more than one week which i think is perfectly plausible so the risk now that the procurement has belatedly started the risk now is the government is going to try and manage the rollout and that uh, uh, does not bode well at all and it's a comment too chris a very useful one for how sometimes our clients say to us you know you guys talk about this ideological stuff and does it matter actually does i mean do we need to bother with it or learn about it or take it into account in strategy i don't think there is a better example of the price a country pays or the price this country pays for ideological obstinacy than the delayed um vaccine rollout and given the weakness with which south africa entered covid and the weakness from which it will emerge there there was you know it's a great it's a great missed opportunity because if we had been an early vaccinator and our private sector could have ensured that that happened we would have had a tremendous step up on the way to economic recovery uh, in the world the fact that we're going to be a late vaccinator exposes us to the risk of new mutations that might not be uh, dealt with effectively by, by the vaccine and uh, holds out the risk both mutations and delayed rollout that we'll become a vaccine laggard and the world will cut us off as it begins to recover uh, more quickly and that is just about the worst nail in the coffin
that could be added to South Africa's current economic and political outlook. If you have a short-term outlook or if you are a very staunch ANC supporter, if you have a longer-term outlook and the future of the ANC is neither here nor there for you, you don't have a history in it, you don't, uh, etc., uh, then this vaccine delay simply is a new accelerant of the move towards this great political realignment that I think sits on South Africa's horizon. Chris? I've always tried to think of it as your ideology in basic terms is your worldview. And as Ayn Rand said, A is A. So whatever your ideology is determines how you view the world. And that didn't, you know, that's going to determine the view that you think the state should play or what a political party should play or how the state should behave in people's lives. So I, I find it interesting that people ask the question of why I talk about ideology or that kind of thing. I mean, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, so I enjoy those conversations, but I think well, it's useful yeah. to think in those terms. It's very, I mean, it's, 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 it informs the decisions that you will take. And it's the, yeah. it's the greatest strategic planning weakness in South African business is, is being surprised by unanticipated events. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the recent, very small example, but, but a significant one and a good case study. The idea now uh, cast about 10 days ago to up, wage levels in the restaurant industry. Now, this is an industry that's that's been shut down. At, at present, it can't sell alcohol, which is a major part of the industry. Uh, and and a policymaker says, well, you know what? <laughs> Given all this, let's let's increase the, the cost burden on entrepreneurs that run restaurants. And and you, you'll hear a lot of people say it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's logical. It's it's the if you if you look at it through a sort of business perspective, it doesn't make any sense. But, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it is without sense. The mistake a lot of South African businessmen make is they continue to insist in looking at the world and the government through a perspective that 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 that, that they hold, that business holds as, as the correct one. And therefore they're so often surprised. If the world doesn't make sense, my advice to a client is start to look at it differently until it makes sense. And if you understand the 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 uh, sort of ideology that 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 believes that the private sector cannot create wealth and investment, that growth does not make a country better off, it only promotes inequality. That the private mining industry is in South Africa to, to steal its resources and send them overseas to rich Americans and Europeans. Then those policy decisions begin to make sense. Why does why do South African entities not want to have that discussion? One of the major reasons is is political sensitivity around it. And, and there, there's a wonderful example. It's quite an old one now, so you can share it. I won't say from whom, but it was quite a prominent business uh, a group where at a meeting uh, someone said, you know, the problem is that Rob Davies, who was then the Minister of Trade, I think, is a communist. And the chairman said, you completely unacceptable to say that, that we, we will not accuse anyone of being a communist. 
and the 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 chap said, but but you know, I, I don't mean it in a derogatory way. Fact is, he's a he is a communist. He himself says so, and, and the chairman said, I don't care what he calls himself. We're not going to engage in that kind of talk here. And and then you know you you it's it's you know it's, it's the extreme case, but it makes the point. We still confront a lot of that, where on public fora, etc., there's a great reluctance to to speak frankly and honestly about the ideological roots of a lot of South Africa's uh, political and and policy problems. However, as those problems bite deeper and deeper and deeper, that does begin to change. But but probably too late in the day to save the current administration. It's probably just going to be used as part of the diagnosis in the longer term of why the current administration later wasn't able to sustain its national majority. Chris. We've talked a lot the last few years about structural reforms and South Africans get excited about and there's analysis about it, but I've always thought South Africa needs the right kind of structural reform. It doesn't help if we just get structural reform that's going to lead us further down the sort of socialist Marxist path, as it were. So I wanted to ask you, you touched on the NHI. Um, any other major policy predictions, projections that you have for this year and a bit longer term that you think will definitely get implemented, either positive or negative? Well, I'll tell you what, what I think is necessary, and then we can see whether it's plausible. This is a good point that you raise, because it's easy to say reform. We support reform. There are, are journalists who support the government's reform agenda. But if you ask them, well, what is on that agenda? You know, I mean, extraditing the Gupta family is good and well, but doesn't take you back. You know, fixed investment to GDP for South Africa has been falling very rapidly over the much of the past decade. You don't arrest the Guptas, investment doesn't automatically come back. Few things need to be done. One is you need to free up the labor market. The labor market absorption rate, I've mentioned it already, is, is so amazingly low uh, that there is no way that it can be raised uh, at at all uh, necessary rate. Think it this way. What does it mean? If, if you want to reduce the black unemployment rate in South Africa to the white rate, and the white rate's quite a good benchmark of things, because for much of the past 20 years, it's been lower than North America and Western Europe. If you want to reduce the black rate to the white rate, you've got to double the number of black people with a job. That means you need to, let's say, how long would you want to do that in? A decade sounds like a good political promise. That would mean a, a job creation of a million net new jobs a year for the next 10 years. And the rule of thumb, which is remarkably good for South Africa, is that the country creates about 100,000 net new jobs per year per point of GDP growth. Uh, so that would suppose, I mean, just show you what the math is, sustaining an economic growth rate of 10% for the next decade. We'll be lucky if we, if we sustain a positive growth rate for the next decade. So you need for wholesale labor market policy reform. Uh, that means you abandon uh, uh, the horizontal application of bargaining council agreements. That means you you allow right-to-work uh, policies, the private voluntary contract between an employer and an employee. You've got to abandon minimum wage prescriptions ac across the labor market. 
And I've had this discussion with policymakers. And to a point, they, 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 they'll concede, particularly when you show them the, the relationship between unemployment and protest action and their own diminishing support, but, but for the short term counter to that that I set out for you earlier. But, but the answer you get back is, well, that, that would open the, 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 the poor to exploitation by employers. You say, well, this is a hard reality that you've hit. If you're not prepared to make that call, then we will with great confidence tell you what's going to happen next is that you will not create a substantive number of jobs in South Africa's next decade and ultimately that will be your political demise. So, so it, 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 is, it is wholesale labor market policy reform. Second thing that the country needs is to upend its model of empowerment. The, the, we are mischaracterized on this intentionally. Uh, uh, I know. So let's make it clear. The, the There can be no greater priority morally or economically or if you're a crazed capitalist such as some of your free market foundation colleagues are, I, I think, than accelerating uh, poor people into the economy so that they can attain a much higher standard of living, the middle class status, whatever that would be. They can buy more, spend more, more tax, you can drop overall tax rates, economy booms, rain in the deficit, it's all good. Uh, but the present empowerment policy doesn't do that. And the reason it doesn't do that is it uses race as a proxy for disadvantage when disadvantage can be determined in its own right. And the problem there is, is that you create a, a situation where the gatekeepers to empowerment use the sort of very powerful political narrative of race and racism to benefit a very narrow elite and often individuals who need no help from the state at all, perfectly decent standard of living, become beneficiaries of the policy that's purportedly necessary to empower the poor. Change empowerment policy to give it a socio-economic basis so that you become a beneficiary of the policy not because of an accident of birth but because, because you're poor. You can measure this. Did you grow up in a poor household? Did you go to a, a school uh, that, that you measure in one of the poorer quintiles in the country? Did your, did your parents go to university? That's a straightforward metric to use. Did, did your parents own property? These are, you can determine very easily. But if you do not get rid of the, of the, of the nationalist basis, the race nationalist basis of empowerment policy, given how corrupt the political system in South Africa is and, and given the power behind racial nationalist narratives, empowerment policy in South Africa will never reach the people who are in greatest need of being accelerated out of poverty. So there too, scrap labor market deregulation, remove the race basis of empowerment policy. These are not nice to have. These are the necessary conditions if South Africa wishes to uh, uh, compete with the growth rates of emerging markets around the world. Now, within, it, it could be possible, it, it, it could be done. The government has the power to do it. It understands the threat to itself in not doing it. 
in the longer term. That's well understood. But it won't do it. And the reason it won't do it is, is well, there's a short-term governance stuff, the political elite benefit from the status quo. But behind it is the ideology. It's an ideological bridge too far. And that happens. It's not a uniquely South African position. But when ideologically obstinate governments run into political and economic reality, elections and growth rates and joblessness numbers, the reality ultimately prevails over the ideology. And that's going to happen here as well. And this isn't just, uh, Chris, a government problem. Uh, across business, there's very little that's willing. Privately, it might be conceded, what I've said. But publicly, there's very little willingness to say that these are the reforms that are necessary if we are to become a more prosperous society. And if, 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 if a key constituency like business cannot lobby effectively in favor of these reforms, and that the media, of course, doesn't buy into them at all, uh, uh, where will they come from? Uh, who will drive them? Well, there are a few think tanks that drive such reforms. So yourselves are one, the IRR is second, etc. Um, but another answer to the reformers who say reform was imminent would be to say to them, well, where would it come from? Because who who had the ideas of what to do? And those ideas really didn't, didn't exist in the main. They still aren't mainstream ideas. And for that reason, they cannot be implemented. And therefore, reform is not coming. It's not just around the corner. It's not six months away. There is no long game. It's all political, political fluff. Chris. All I'll say on the free markets, capitalism, fanaticism comment is that there's nothing better for which to be a fanatic than that, I think. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about uh, expropriation without compensation. And if you think we'll get some version of it this year, of course, we have the local elections coming up. Well, we hope that they take place this year. At least I hope that they take place. But could EWC be used you know, in that sort of electioneering campaigning vein? Do you think we'll get at least some version of it this year, some sort of amendment to the constitution? It's been a long time coming. We will get it. And uh, the government will begin to use it. In fact, it has already begun to use it. If uh, your pension fund was used to back up independent media's empire, you were expropriated without compensation. If you're one of the uh, sort of pension holders who was told that if you emigrate, you can't touch your money for three years, you've, you've been expropriated without without compensation. Uh, if you are a hawker in the city of Johannesburg, you had your goods confiscated by the Metro Police, which, which remains just one of the maddest South Africa phenomena there is. There's this vast political change on the horizon. There's this desperate poverty, this massive unemployment, and the police arrest people who are trying to run little businesses on the side of the road just to feed their families. It's absolutely insane. Then you've suffered expropriation without compensation. What's changed now is that it's being backstopped legally and constitutionally, and that's being done through the expropriation bill and the constitutional amendment, both of which I think are through this year. The, the, the purpose is not land reform. Uh, there isn't much demand in South Africa for land reform. Uh, there's there's hype in the media, and there are and the relative elites in our society, people who live in suburbs and have herb gardens, 
They're very keen on land reform. But South Africa's rural poor and urban poor are not. There's no demand to go back ECAR to living from the soil, partly because many people have living memory experience of what that's like. They want to get away from it and go to cities and have jobs. And poll after poll after poll shows this very clearly. The ANC's polls made it absolutely explicit to the party. There's no demand for land reform. That's a different point to saying that people who lost property as a consequence of the racist laws on South Africa's past need to be compensated. Of course they do. And they should have a choice. Do they want to take property? Do they want to take money? Do they want to take something else? But that's a societal good. And, and uh, that's, that's certainly what the Constitution suggests, and that's what politicians suggest, that's what business suggests. And therefore, it needs to be financed by society through taxpayers' uh, 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 funding. On, so what, what is behind this expropriation drive? There are two things. One, it's a way to inflame tensions between people. The, the great fear of, of every government that has governed here for the last 400 years, that has got into trouble, is that the moderate majority of South Africans might unite in common cause against it. And divide and rule has worked spectacularly well. And expropriation without compensation is the divide and rule question because although you know some of the extreme activists will say it, many won't, that what it basically says is the reason for black poverty is relative white prosperity and will punish the whites as, as a consequence that you'll feel better. It works politically, it inflames things. Even sensible people who are on the same side and should be, when they start discussing this, they turn on each other and that's politically very dangerous. So that's one reason for it. The other reason for it is that the government is running out of money. And the cadre deployment uh, networks that uh, are so important to the internal unity of the ANC, uh, practically, if, if your, if your uh, uh, colleague stops getting his, his tender or his job or whatever it is, he'll become very unhappy. That, that will start a fight. And uh, if you fight too much, out will come all the stories about the corruption and the tender bending and the like, and the party implodes internally. Now, to finance your cadre deployment network in sustaining your internal unity, you need a lot of cash. And for 20 years, that cash was available through the fiscus. Uh, South Africa's economy grew quite strongly. It even had a budget surplus at some point. It could finance these, these, these deals, uh, whether they were explicitly corrupt or whether they were, were uh, classed as empowerment deals. But I said to you earlier that the deficit is now at a depth that, you know, the country has only seen at the moments of the greatest crises. And that cupboard is bare. And so the model of cadre deployment needs to pivot. And it needs to pivot away from dependency on taxpayer money to dependency on private money. And the biggest pot of private money is the savings of South Africans. And slowly a narrative is built that, you know, those savings just lie there. That's what the activists say. They're not used. Uh, private sectors on an investment strike. None of these things are accidental. They contrive to create a narrative. And therefore, given the desperation of people and poverty, the government needs access to those funds. 
And what it wishes to do is it wishes to seize those funds and apply them to plug expenditure gaps in state spending in order to keep cadre deployment networks flowing. And they'll come up with great reasons for this. Uh, you'll hear of infrastructure plans, etc. It's nothing of the sort. It's financing the cash flows for cadre deployment. And when that starts to happen on mass and pensioners realize that, look, your funds got committed to ESKIM without the requisite management changes and it's gone then challenges will follow and it will be said well you know this is this is expropriation of those funds and to head off the risk that a future legal challenge to asset prescription can succeed you need the confluence of the constitutional amendment and the expropriation bill dressed up as they are as land reform measures i mean who would argue against that and and get away with it be banned from twitter or something and that is what is going on here. Third reason that is growing in prominence is the understanding that if you're on the political line and you need to undermine in time democratic institutions and the rule of law, the door you walk through first is the erosion of property rights. It's a case study of Venezuela. It's a case study of Zimbabwe. They're the two most recent and most prominent. And uh, you must have no doubt that there are political leaders in this country in very influential positions in the cabinet, the senior leadership of the ANC, who understand the political advantage in eroding constitutional protections that would accrue to them if they're able to get these two pieces of policy through. Uh, Chris. France, the upcoming State of the Nation address, do you think that can be sort of viewed as some kind of weather vane for what the government is looking at this year, or do you think it's going to be a, a sort of um, another showcase of smoke and mirrors, the first one of this year? I don't think you're going to see much solid in there. I mean, we, we've been looking at meetings that have been happening around that. There's nothing firm on reform that's going to come out. There's, 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 no, it's a, and, and those speeches have, be, have, have, have become very weak. You know, and Becky used to do the sort of poetic state of the nation speeches also not with terribly much content but he had some great content to use I mean, that surpluses high growth jobs numbers up service delivery was better i think than even he understood at the end of his his time no i it will be um, a disappointment the speech um Okay, um, and then, sorry, before I go on to the next question, I wanted to remind everyone watching, please um, like the video and, and subscribe to the channel. Please also share the video and then please go to the Center for Risk Analysis YouTube channel and subscribe to their channel as well to get more of this kind of content from Franz and his colleagues. So Franz, the next question I had for you was South Africa's role or not um, in the continent or in the world over the next few years, do you think it's going to take on a diminished role? Um, I have a lot of hope in something like the Africa continental free trade area. And I hope that South Africa takes some sort of lead on that at least. And we have people like minister Ibrahim Patel talking about, you know, how good it's going to be. But then I wonder if it's someone like him talking good stuff about free trade. I don't know what he views free trade as. So South Africa, in a, in a global context in the next year or so? No, I don't think it will take much of a lead. I mean, it can't lead itself. Um, so it's... Those who can't do... Anyone else. <laughs> those who can do, those who can't teach. I, I taught for a time at 
Oh well, to university. So, so it's not always true that the um. We'll move past that one quickly. <laughs> right. I think I'd, I'd, I'll. You've given me the global context gap, and I want to use it like this. Uh, Twenty-five years ago, when South Africa was on the brink of the great reform. There were two really important influences in favor of the country's success. The first is that China was still on that upward tail end of the Deng-inspired reform era. And the advice that South Africa would have got from China did get was, yeah, you can open up. You can begin to compete. Uh, this is the way to success and prosperity. And the Chinese did, did put that to the ANC and to Mandela. And I think it was very influential. Now, China faces the prospect of insurrection at home. The middle class becomes frustrated. Uh, Hong Kong showed the risk to China's mainland of young middle class people with access to information beginning to challenge the authority of the state. And it's for that reason that the Chinese cracked down so harshly on Hong Kong and why the Qi administration is cracking down so harshly on um, dissent within China itself. And so South Africa won't get the same advice from China it would have got 25 years ago. 25 years ago, the Western world still believed in liberty in the main, uh, uh, etc. But that has changed in the era of critical race theory. And that has changed in the era of Black Lives Matter. And the, the sentiment that carries the Biden administration to power is one of greater protectionism, greater state control, greater regulation. And I think it's an administration that in its decisions on taxation and on the environment and on, 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 on labor will undermine American uh, ingenuity and competitiveness over the longer term, just as China's crackdown on dissent will undermine the ability of the Chinese economy to innovate. And so South Africa finds itself in a, in, 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 in a different strategic circumstance to 25 years ago because the, the, the mainstream advice it will get from the Western world might not be the best advice to follow. Uh, it, it echoes, in fact, very closely. Uh, there's been some interesting writing in America on it that 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 where the Biden administration wants to take America on policy is really where the ANC took South Africa on policy. That should worry a lot of Americans. And on China, it won't get the right advice either. So it's to take your lead from the rest of the world now for South Africa. I don't see that ending terribly well for the country. But if we were possessed of an inspired domestic leadership that would act at odds both with the sort of ideological advice that I think will increasingly emanate from the Western world and with the political advice that will emanate from China. South Africa actually has its advantage there and it can outperform the global averages and, and do terribly well. But uh, uh, it is not at this time possessed of that leadership. So I think it will wallow, take the worst lessons from both the the West and China, and but all of this again, it's it's. I said earlier when I started, you know, into the medium term, it's not great. Into the longer term, if the ANC loses, it's gone. 
it's no longer in in charge it it falls apart as it can't dispense patronage that will that will create a window an enormous window of opportunity for south africa to again find its way and uh, uh if 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 you think well uh, you know, he has to say that otherwise be a bit dreary. It's not that. I mean, we we call it as we see it at the center. It's our reputation. There, inside the South African populace, inside that polling, there is a vast well of common goodwill and decency between people, and a desire to to live a, a middle class standard of living. And in fact, there's incredible political alignment across different race, class, ethnic. A religious age, political groups about what needs to be done. And if you have this sort of cathartic moment, this psychologically critical break of the current administration being knocked down to below 50%, what grows out of that could be very, very positive. Chris. Okay, France, we had two questions just in the comments that I wanted to highlight, and I think we can take them almost as one. So from Michael Setas, who just asked whether you believe there is a, any possibility of a political opposition developing within the next decade that could take on the ANC at the polls. And then from Matthew, John, is it reasonable that the ANC will, will be punished in the next local elections? Will we see more support for other parties or will the numbers of people who choose not to vote just increase? Well, that punishes the ANC. Let's start with the latter point. I think this local poll, you'll see the ANC just on over 50%. A little bit back from where it was in the last local poll. On the opposition to challenge the ANC, not that way around. I actually think the, the ANC loses first. And then, you know, in the aftermath of that, the, 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 the future opposition grows. It's really a question of voted numbers diminishing, attrition, and, and the other parties kind of just collectively like little piranhas nipping away at the ANC until it sits below 50. I don't think you're going to get, while the ANC is around, the prospect for a, a new, big, serious opposition movement. And there are a few reasons for that. One, it's while the ANC is there, it's very difficult for people to think beyond the ANC. The, the question from our clients, on, even on the long-term futures, what will the ANC do? What will the ANC do on mining? What will it do on this? What will it do on expropriation? And we say, well, we can address that, but you need to think just as much about what will be done if the ANC is not there to do it anymore. That's very hard. Secondly, while there is any hope that the ANC might turn around, and I, I think it's forlorn hope now, given the structure of that organization, the, the political money, will continue to flow into what little crevices of reform are eked out of the ANC itself. It's only once it's gone that uh, the backing, because, because politics and money go together. You, you need a, a lot. And if, if you, you know, be wary of putting a number on it, but, but if you committed X billion rand to the 2024 election, I'm pretty confident that you could, you could influence a, a determine a result of 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 ANC support way below fifty percent, and by twenty twenty nine, I'm I'm pretty sure you could command a result where someone new, brand new, was in charge. I don't think it's going to be any of the existing players though. So the the trajectory in answer to your guest's question is attrition eats away at the ANC. It's below fifty. A few years of shambolic coalition. 
big psychological break has happened. Uh, massive funds become available to back a new movement. If that movement is aligned to resonate with public opinion, which is far more center, center right than many people think, it can win in 2029. And if you want the best case for South Africa now, a realistic best case, I think the best case is that in 2029, South Africa is governed by brand new political leadership. They don't exist. They don't have the origins in the older parties. They command the, uh, 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 the coalition or they have an outright majority. And in terms of policy, they essentially take, in, in many respects, their blueprint would be gear. And what happened under Mandela and Mbeki, minus the strategic mistakes Mbeki later took on, on, on race-based policies, which, which sunk him and, and others. It's really a return to the essence of gear. And um, uh, the ANC did well. You know, at the end of the gear era, Chris, the ANC was 10 percentage points stronger in an election than what it had been at the moment when Mandela led South Africa to freedom in 1994. And that lesson, you can show it with the supporting data to the ANC leadership of today. They concede that you're probably right, but they can't go back there because it's an ideological bridge too far for them. Chris. Another question from the comments. Would it be a good idea for all parties to join forces and create a single party that will try to get the ANC? Out of no. office. <laughs> We're a terrible idea. It doesn't go anywhere near there. You want competition. If, if they all join in, into one, this is our forget this, you know, can't they all join or can't all the activists join one organization? No, absolutely fatal. Then politically, if you're a rogue state security operative, as, as we hear about at the Zondor Commission, all you need to do is infiltrate that one organization turn its leadership and its ideology and you safeguard the present administration from, from, from threats. No, have a plethora of smaller operators, let them hold each other to account. And then the lesson of the DA of the last 10 years is, is that, that, that it itself needed to be held to account, lest it would have collapsed into the sort of fluffy middle ground of, of ANC policymaking. No, 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 you want a plethora but on the right issues, they can come together and vote together. Uh, um, that, that's, that's the best way. But this new thing of everyone unites against the ANC. If, 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 if there's not a rogue ANC operative behind that, I'd be, or wishing to be behind that, I'd be very surprised. Chris? We have a question regarding the possibility of the ANC and EFF going into a coalition. Do you think that's a, a strong yeah. possibility? Perhaps it's a medium, yeah, it's a medium-term possibility. Yes, and it's you know you you put that out for a client. They say, well, it's very worrying because now they together the EFF commands the ANC. In the medium term, it is worrying. In the longer term, though, EFF's got to think carefully. Because the momentum behind the ANC is straight down at the moment. Shedding supports like a comet, people, pieces breaking off it. If your political strategy is to bolt yourself to that falling comet, it's going to take you down with it in the end. The EFF has the advantage now. It can say, rant and rave, promise, promises to people. 
It's got no responsibility for governance or the consequences. As soon as it becomes a governing party and its promises don't materialize in the better life, if it has not in short order wrecked the constitution so that it can govern with impunity, its star will plummet at the same rate as the ANCs and you'll end up with a sort of two birds with one stone outcome. Chris. My final question to you, unless any more come in from the comments, and please, everyone watching, if you have anything to put to France, please um, comment that now. Um, I wanted to ask you about the possibility of secession, um, any secession movements in South Africa, whether you think that that could happen or not. I mean, at some point, if you're serious about secession, you probably need to take up arms. I think it, it reaches that point, I would think. Um, but do you think that that could happen, that sort of in, uh, breaking up of South Africa, as it were? Not like that. No, who's going to take up arms and against whom? It's, yeah. not, it's not true. At all plausible. And nor, nor, and it's, nor is this, this entirely looking at a map and, and drawing your line like Aldean Smith and saying, you know, here we are, UDI, declare independence for, I don't know, the Coffee Fontaine or wherever it's going to be. It's not going to be like that, I think. More likely is that independence will be achieved in a de facto manner, as it already has in so many communities around the country, that have lessened their exposure to the consequences of a failing state. Many people, for example, have exported some of their wealth. You don't follow our advice. Go talk to your advisor before you do anything. But they've moved into the dollar. And so they think their wealth is in dollars, their futures in dollars. They've, they've, they, they've really exited the round. There are now multiple of of private security guards relative to policemen in South Africa. That wasn't the case in 94. And uh, that is the elites ex limiting their exposure to the failures of the state. Do your own refuse, collection, medical aid, schools, etc. By the time your, your money's offshore, you, you run a business that is as ours online. You talk to clients here and around the world. Your you make use of private institutions. You know, you've you've achieved a degree of independence there. Uh, as great as anything you'd achieve if you drew a line on the map and, you know, closed the road. And I think that's probably the way it's going to happen. And, and, and I think it's going to be a global phenomenon. I think as the culture wars take hold, the divisions in the Western world deepen. Uh, these, this is an enclave formation. We wrote that in a book three years ago, that they'll enclaves of the future. Definitely, that's the way it's going to happen. In the longer term, there is a case for federalism in South Africa. One of uh, the IRR colleagues, Dwayne Essau, you should start to read, is new on the scene, new analyst, very bright guy. Uh, yeah, there is a case for federalism in South Africa. Provinces to compete with each other on areas of taxation, labor, and so on, just to allow the poorer provinces some chance to compete with the wealthier ones. Um, politically, would there be significant support for that uh, from a majority? Not at the moment. The Cape Independence people have 
chatted to us from time to time. I think it's I think it's interesting what they're trying to do. I, I think if people choose to secede, that should be their right. But, you know, the Western Cape is a microcosm of South Africa. The Western Cape on its own, its unemployment rate is very, very bad by global norms. It's better than South Africa's, but it's terrible. It, it has the same uh, demographic type split, slightly different. It has the same racial nationalist factions. It, it has those issues. If you can't resolve those issues at a South African level, you mustn't be certain that you can resolve them at, at a much more local level. Uh, and a last point on that, and, and I think, right, why, where, where would we be wrong on this? If Natal goes first, then all bets are off. Uh, the king threatened when, when the ANC threatened to expropriate Ngonyama Trust to go it alone. That had the political leadership rushing off to see his majesty. And as I put it to one of the Cape people, if you guys ever pull this off, the Western Cape on its own, the road to Cape independence will lead through Lundi. Chris. Sounds like a pretty good uh, slogan there. Um, two <laughs> final questions uh, on which to wrap up. So Rahul asked, um, how does the middle-income man prepare for the assault on pensions and any locally invested funds? And then the second question from Chris was, what is the probability of the local government elections being postponed this year? So those can be our final questions. Mm, mm, mm. I don't think they'll postpone the elections. There's thoughts of it. There is a longer-term move to merge the national with local, uh, which would make a lot of sense because the ANC performs quite well on national-level issues uh, relative to local-level issues. National issues are a bit more esoteric. Then local issues where you live is pothole and sewerage flows in the street, you don't have electricity. So that's a risk by 2024. On uh, the, the well, what do you do? Um, right. Um, you, need, you, you need good information, firstly. Be, if, if you listen to any analyst, um, look at the track record. Have these guys got it right? Did they tell you Ramaphoria was going to happen? Did they tell you the currency was going to strengthen back to 11? Uh, did, they, did they tell you, you know, the growth rate would be 3% by now? Uh, uh, did they tell you that corruption, mass prosecutions would happen? If they told you all of that, be very, be very wary. Be wary, too, of the advice that you get from large institutions. Uh, if, if you're the chief economist of a large financial institution and, and you tell the hard truth about where the economy is going, you will create a shock in markets. And I'm sympathetic to that. And also recall in these large institutions, the senior leadership is remunerated in options and various things that vest over time. So sometimes you don't get frank analysis. And then you've got to introduce the political correctness issue as well where it's difficult to say what reforms must be done because it's politically too hard to say, you know, that you must turn empowerment policy on its head. So get get access to good information, number one. Number, and, and from a, a, a track record of getting things right. Second thing you must do is if you imagine a matrix, it's a, a horizontal and a vertical line with four quadrants. Each of those quadrants 
you need to understand how many options have you got now. Now, this can be a household, it can be a business, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. Your first quadrant is, uh, is your assets. Where are they? What are they? Where are they? Are they, you know, all denominated in rands in property in South Africa, in the American stock market? Be careful, it's terribly high. And you, 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 you want to um, have as many options as possible across asset classes, regions, currencies, etc., to mitigate against shocks, global and domestic. Your second quadrant is your kids. What are their prospects? Uh, can they? Are they very well educated? Are they getting excellent qualifications? Will they be globally in demand, uh, or, or not? In, in which case, then there's. Then there's your own career. What do you do and who do you do it for? If you, uh, you know, were exposed only to the restaurant business in South Africa, you have a really harsh time. If, you, if, you're, if you're a firm in South Africa that's very exposed to fixed assets, stuff hard in the ground investment, you're very exposed to, to future political risks and expropriation. If you're a dynamic company, your, your intellectual property is your greatest asset, you nimble, can work here, anywhere in the world, you're much better positioned. And lastly is the question of where in the world you are. Do, do you have options to, to move? And that move doesn't mean overseas. You know, Johannesburg is, is deteriorating. Uh, uh, Cape is looking up and as, as it attracts the best out of the north. Do you have those options to move? And once you've completed that matrix, you've got to look at each quadrant and say, how many choices have you got here? And if you've got very few choices, you're running a very, very high degree of risk because what other people decide and determine, the union buildings, et cetera, is going to determine everything that happens to you. If as across those quadrants you realize you've actually got a lot of choices, then you're damn well positioned for a, a volatile and exciting roller coaster world. You don't actually have to fear much either, because what you gain on the swings, you lose on the roundabouts, etc. So I'd, I recommend you do that. And once you've done it, it's never too late to start. Look at your choices and options and make your strategy to create more of them uh, if, if you have very few. The surviving in South Africa is not a unique place in the world anymore. It's it's not a particularly special case. It's a hugely volatile environment. And if you want to survive in volatile environments, you you do so not by knowing exactly what's coming, but you do so by creating choices, lots of them. And the more choices you have, the more robustly you are positioned. And once you've got the right sort of number of choices, you don't actually have to worry terribly much because you're very, very strongly positioned. And that's what we try and do for our clients, try and take them to a position where they are so robustly positioned. And it's possible. It doesn't matter who you are. That's the advice, Chris. And uh, from me, if that's the end of us for this morning, just say thank you very much to you guys for having us on. And I hope you have a successful year. And thank you to the people who took the time to listen to what we've had to say. Chris. Thank you, Franz. I think that's a very good note uh, on which to, to wrap up. I want to thank you for your time and your insights this morning. Always a pleasure and a privilege to get to, to listen to you.
analyze all sorts of things. Um, to everyone who, who joined us this morning, we hope you found value in this episode. Uh, please remember again to like the video, please share it on your different social media channels and also subscribe to the FMF's channel for more content like this in the future. And we also recommend that you check out the Center for Risk Analysis. Go to their website in the link below. You can find all of their products, um, their weekly risk alerts um, that France does quite often um, where they give very good insights into all sorts of risks facing South Africans here from, from the government and from, from external forces. So on that note, we'll wrap up. We thank you again for your time and we'll chat to all of you again very soon. Bye-bye.